Welcome to episode 15 of the Whiteness in America podcast. My name is Tom Bell. I'm Joshua Trinidad. And we're here in the studio. Yes. I don't know why I said that. The virtual studios, yeah. Yeah, it's our virtual studios. Yeah, yeah lots going on. Big episode today. So today uh, we interview Kayla, Kaylin Heffernan, uh, the MC and architect of the uh, band Wheelchair Sports Camp out of Denver uh, to talk about music and activism and the intersection of those things and her experience. And then we also sit down and talk with uh, Dr. Josie Carmona, um, who is uh, an interim vice president um, at a community college out in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and uh, getting her feedback and thoughts on uh, schools opening up and the impact of that. Um, So big episode today, Josh. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's awesome, and I'm really happy that we were able to bring, um, you know, Kaylin, and Kaylin, and I, I think there's just so many intersections here, too, that both Josie and Kaylin are friends. They both know each other, which is fantastic, but... But um, we had them on separate. We kept them separate. Yeah, we're, yeah, we kept them separated. <laughs> Virtually distant. Virtually distant. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think we cover a lot of ground as far as... Um, our current climate here in the United States being that of activism, safety, health, and education. And so um, really, really exciting um, to, to be able to uh, talk, talk, chat with both. Yeah, and, and so one of the you know things that you know I, I think you and I um, kind of get into in the conversation is this concept, and I, I brought it up a couple times in the conversation you did as well, is we're now seeing um, – you know, in, in our conversation with Kaylin, we talk about activism. You and I in the past have talked about it's the youth that are really driving this movement. Right. Um, in the last week, we have lost three giants in the civil rights movement, right? Right. Um, right. And, and so those folks and their work and the legacies, uh, likes of John Lewis in, in particular, um, who passed away this past week, you know, are their work is being left in good hands. I think with what we're seeing in the youth and the yes. movements that are happening, right? And so um, we have these movements going on now in the cities, and and we ha- we still have folks that are out protesting. On the back end of that, though, we see the federal government and the Trump administration sending federal forces to cities. And his definition, or excuse me, his justification of that is. Um, these cities are being quoted, and I quote, overrun by a shocking explosion of shootings, killings, murders, and heinous crimes of violence. Um, and and he's sending folks to Kansas City, Chicago, Albuquerque, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Oakland are the areas uh, that the, the, the White House has identified as bases in which we need to have uh, federal law enforcement uh, cracking down on, on, these, uh, on this. Um, on the flip side of that, 14 mayors of these large cities have sent a collective letter to the president asking him to remove the federal forces or not send them at right. all. So at least there's some collective action happening among the cities. Yeah. Josh, what's your take on this? What's What are your thoughts on uh, on this? Well, I, I think, I mean, he's, uh, I think right now Trump is backed in himself into yet another corner. Um, and this corner, you know, he's he's literally trying to shoot his way out of it. And... Um, I, we are starting to see a surge of his believers and followers uh, beginning to leave him. 
and, and you know, first, you know, when he was in front of the White House and he went to go take a picture in front of a church, you know, he lost a, a whole bunch of followers and believers in his policies at that moment. He's doing this as yet another tactic that to hold on to some of his voters um, to say, like, he's not going to handle, you know, this type of um, now he's calling it rioting. I think that right. was his verbiage, his, this type of rioting in the United States, which speaks to a group of voters that support him. But, you know, again, the more that we can expose Trump's falsehoods as, as you know, we can show the facts to the people. I hope, in essence, is what he's doing is actually more or less crumbling his own um, his own camp of uh, supporters. And so um, I think the discussions are happening. And I, you know, when, when Trump does stuff like this, I feel like it just adds more fuel to the fire against him, more or less for him. And my hope, my hope is that all this translates to votes. Um, and it brings up an interesting point too, because he he had that um, interview on Fox News last week. And, you know, it was one of, the, one of the few times that Fox really challenged Trump. And the question I asked him is said, you know, if in fact you do lose the, you know, your reelection, like, do you plan on leaving gracefully and he said well we'll, we'll just have to see that's and that made me yeah it's very scary um because if he loses we already know he's going to contest it and mm -hmm. what does that mean as far as him actually leaving and so um the fact that he said we'll see he's you know he's bringing military police in the cities it's 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 very scary all of it when you tie it together yeah, he's used the language law and order. You know, I'm the law and order president, which has been used in the past by other figures that have tried to do a signaling to white working class white folks and, and, and saying, you know, I will get I will bring these urban epicenters under control. Right. And that's kind of what he's saying right. in this sense. And you think about the vibrance and the beauty that happens in our, our urban spaces and our cities in spite of the systemic and systematic challenges that the folks in these cities face, right? And so they don't need more policing. They don't need more federal government oversight in terms of pulling people into vans that are unmarked by unmarked officers. What they need is they need the infrastructure and support to continue to build these beautiful spaces and, and the have access to good health care and have access to food and have access to like lifeblood things and not continue to um, create similar to what Bill Clinton did with this with the war on drugs, which is an extension of what Reagan right. was doing um, and, and having more policing. But and I think that that's the whole point of the defund police movement is not to say we don't need police. It's to say we need to redistribute the resources that go to the police to actually get it in the hands of individuals who can actually do the work that's needed in these communities in these spaces to support and walk with the community members not walk against and what we're seeing by him is a walk against right and so i think i think that's a really interesting thing that's going on right now and i just i feel like we weren't doing justice <laughs> on a podcast right. that talks about racism without naming that a little bit today uh right it's pretty significant um yeah, but uh, should we get to our interview with Kaylin? Let's do it.
All right. Up next is our interview with Kaylin Heffernan, uh, the MC of uh, the band uh, Wheelchair Sports Camp, which you can find at wheelchairsportscamp.co. Um, we'll hear a little bit more about uh, that in a minute. Hello, everybody. Uh, Joshua Trinidad here. Today we have a special guest on our podcast. This is Kaylin Heffernan. She is the lead face, front woman, man, child, everything, brainchild, uh, wheelchair sports camp, activist, lyricist, writer, everything. Dope-ass performer. Everything. Yeah, all of it. (laughs) Um, she is with us today and excited to have her here to talk about activism, music, and the world. So welcome, Kaylin, to Whiteness in America. What up? Wait a Also seen in New York Times last week. Whoa, really? Yes, yes. As, as seen in New York Times last week. That's in my new writer. It is, in, it should be. Just kidding. Well, do what you want to talk in, about that? Yeah, what yeah, were you in New York talk- Times for? Hi, uh, yeah. Uh, very random, very surprised. Um, the ADA is about to celebrate its 30th anniversary uh, here on Sunday. And so, uh, you know, people are doing stories, and and this story ended up being about Crip Hop Nation, which is kind of like a collective that Leroy Moore from San Francisco has compiled of just a bunch of disabled uh, hip hop artists. And he's kind of a historian on the matter, and not just hip hop, um, but uh, disabled musicians in general, specifically disabled black musicians um, from history. Uh, so he's he's just an awesome curator and uh, activist and organizer. Um, this was like a list of five hip-hop artists and your boy here was number one <laughs> just, that's uh, awesome yeah yeah so it's cool and random and sweet and um yeah leroy what you know leroy hit me up the very first myspace track i ever published in college separately like solo for you know probably like a songwriting assignment or something and was like hey can i add you to the crip hop list and uh i've done a couple events with him and and got to connect with him on tour um and he's introduced me to people and i've introduced him to people so it's been a cool 
cool relationship ever since. And um, I don't even know if he knew about the article, actually. The big prize to all of us. And they featured our song, uh, Heart Out Here for a Gift. That's cool. That's awesome. Remember how we met? Oh, you know, the it classic was... Trini just like e- cold emailed and was like, let me sit in. Well, you don't remember this, Kaylin, but at the Westward, you almost hit me and Aaron. I almost what? You like, you like zoomed past me and Aaron at the Westward the day that you guys did like a really awesome performance. Mm. It was like 2011, 12, mm-hmm. 11. And you were like, like that far away. Aaron's like, who was that little girl? I was like, I don't know, but she almost hit us. I'm pissed. (laughs) (laughs) And then we went to your show and I was like, oh, damn, they were really good. I didn't meet that day then. I just tried to hit you. Yeah, asshole. Yeah. Anyway. So why music for you as your avenue for activism? Um, it, it's really, like, never felt like much of a choice to me. Um, rap music was my first identity, honestly. Um, that was, like, unique to me, um, and not, like, inherited from genetics or parents or, um, yeah, it was like this chose an identity at a really young age um, that I just very strongly like identified with as a five-year-old <laughs> and it was it was mine um, and so yeah I've been I've been a little rap kid since ever since I can remember and you know rap music um, it's it's a resistant genre, you know, like it was birthed out of resistance. So I think it all kind of went hand in hand. But um, like what what pushed me personally, like into more of this um, like activism, organizing, caring, empathetic role was probably 9-11. Um, and being mm. in high school, and I was already, I had started, like, writing my own raps in middle school, um, so I was already kind of, like, on my head that that's what I was going to do, um, but all my raps were just, like, making fun of myself and rhyming little with Skittle and, like, you know, the the clear puns of of being this, like, unique little white girl rapper that was obsessed with TLC. Um, and once 9-11 happened, it kind of just unraveled, you know, the world in general, but my world very, very personally. And, um, and then all of a sudden, like, I, I kind of had this more content in my raps besides just punchlines. Mm. One of the things that Josh and I have been talking about is this intersection of like activism and not just in the lyrics, but actual folks that go out and do stuff in the community. And I think that that's something that I've always been 
impressed by with you and the group and and can you talk a little bit about like some of the work that you're doing now like i um in the in the community in denver and things like that that you're trying to both advocate with in your lyrics and in your performances but also that transcend into your action um yeah it's kind of a very like strange time for me being like active in activism <laughs> um because of covid um so this is you know normally i'd be like downtown every night um this is the first big action in denver that i've not been physically active in since like maybe middle school um so it's kind of like a weird hard time for me to like figure out my role in actions um however um you know i'm about a year away from rolling for mayor which is the most energy and effort i've really put in to organizing and to um liberation and equity and all these things that and art in activism um so i'm giving myself like permission to not be the the center person of that right now and it i wouldn't be anyway because um and i've had to be very like adamant about like not centering myself right now in this time because it's about uh black lives matter and about people of color um that being said like um the whole part of my campaign is that you know disability is at the intersection of every intersection and um through my role in movements, you know, since middle school, uh, I still see a lack of intersection. You know, the disability justice movement is hella racist <laughs> and um, the rest of the movements can be very hella ableist. Um, so I think my biggest like what what keeps me up at night is is that intersection and like how to affect change within it um without being you know the talking piece or this uh the leader by any means because that freaks me out like um uh yeah i just hate that that like top-down approach and that's why like you know even rolling for mayor was such a hard thing on my spirit because it's you know <laughs> politics from a a, a top-down view is like really scummy to me and uh, it's power to me is collective um and so but you know art has always played a role in everything it's at the center of everything and it also allows this space to be safe and to be creative and to be imaginative 
which I think gets lost in protests and activism sometimes because of this survival mode that we're all constantly on because of these like intense oppressive institutions and structures and systems that we're trying to undo. Um, you know, we have to have a place to be creative and to enjoy ourselves and to find that joy and art is always that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to like be diving into some more creative projects than like, uh, than I am politically active or, you know, like at every March. Um, and yeah, I, it's a balance. It's a hard balance within myself. And I, honestly, kind of, you know, everything I do ends up being political. Like my my whole life has been politicized. My body's politicized. Um, every everything about life gets politicized. You know, the band is politics. <laughs> like all of it is politics. So I think they end up working together with each other regardless of what I end up diving into. No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, for for people that are listening and are, are new to, you know, who you are, Kaylin, can you share your disability with those that are just joining us and maybe just joining your music? And and with your disability, how, how has it actually helped um, your activism and understanding your place in, in this large scheme of activism? Because I know for many people, we, we try to find like where we belong in all these movements. And so with your specific disability, how has it, how has it helped you find your place in this, in our world today? Uh, yeah, I guess my disability has like forced me more than it has helped me. Um, and that has been something that like, can be helpful, um, but my, my disability is osteogenesis imperfecta, uh, brittle bones, OI, short. Um, there's different types. Um, I have, oh, I've never been able to like walk normally. Um, I've always had a ton of broken bones. Um, and that kind of forced me to advocate for myself and to be this advocate. And my mother has been a very like fierce advocate for me my whole life and making sure that I got, you know, proper schooling and um, wouldn't let me go to school at places um, that you couldn't get into the front door. So I, I didn't go to my home school. Um, you would have people fired if they tried to segregate me from class, which was, you know, is a very common experience for um, disabled youth. And and she also had to advocate for herself um, to, to keep me because um, it's common with my disability. It was more common then and even more so before I was born to... Um, think that parents are like abusing their little broken babies because we have so many broken bones. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think that's been that there's always been this forced advocacy around my disability, around my life and my survival and um, role in society because if if I wasn't a fierce advocate, like I would be removed from the community, which is historically what happens um, with disability. And then when you're adding on these intersections of class and race and I you know, sexuality, like that, the barriers to community increase exponentially. So um, yeah, I think growing up um, it, in poverty and um, you know, around wild, wild, my mother's wild, <laughs> as you know. Um, and then I <laughs> have this disability and I got, honestly, I was, I've had to, you know, be the, the, the parent figure a lot of times. So it's just kind of like come with my life, um, with who I am. Um, And yeah, it's helped me see from a very different lens that honestly I wouldn't trade. Um, it does come with its advantages for sure. Um, there's a wheelchair magic that I've learned about really young. <laughs> Even getting, <Yeah. laughs> getting newspapers and stuff has like always been my life. I mean, they, you know, newspapers have been documenting me since kindergarten mm -hmm. not with consent <laughs> you know it's just like oh look at this cute girl overcoming overcoming adversity um that's always been the narrative sold about disability since i grew up and i've always like figured out a way to use that to my pitch do yeah. you have a uh a song or a lyric or something that you if for someone that's not familiar with your work at all like what's something that someone could listen to that could be like oh this is this is this is the essence of what you're trying to get at both politically or with activism i mean i'm i'm pretty familiar with like i've seen you perform once live which was awesome like i've listened to mary had a little band um which my favorite line from that is uh there was a stairway to heaven but i couldn't get in um, oh, I think yeah. is what it is, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's really clever. Like, I, I just thought that was really kind of a good play from you. But, like, is there something where you can talk a little bit about this? Because you talk about the intersectionality of race and ability, like, where you kind of talk about that in a lyric. Do you have anything that would point to that in your work? Um, yeah, the song, yeah, the song where that the lyric you're talking about is called Hard Out Here for a Gimp, and that was... Um, It was probably one of my most, like, uh, I've always talked about my disability. It's like the other thing about my disability, which d differentiates it from a some people in the disability community, is A, I was born with it. Two, it's, it's uh, very visible. Like, I, you know, I can't get mistaken for a... Um, and so I've kind of always been forced to like deal with it or not. Um, 
and I've always dealt with it and and identified with it. Um, so Heart Out Here for a Gimp came together better than I expected, and this is like a topic, even politics, like being a political rapper is not a hill I want to die on. Um, <laughs> and being a disabled rapper is not a hill I want to die on. Um, Cause I'm into like bars and rap music, you know, like I have to flex my, my rap. And that doesn't always come with politics or my disability. Um, so like Mary Had a Little Band, for example, is nonsense. There's <laughs> probably very few meaning. There's, I don't know if any of it has meaning, honestly. It's just like a nursery rhyme that rhymes really fucking well. <laughs> um, and then Heart Out Here for a Gimp was actually um, started. There were a bunch of uh, jokes of me like making fun of myself or Trini making fun of me and it became this collection of jokes that if I ever did comedy I could use these jokes and a friend a close friend childhood friend of mine uh, who had the same disability as I and who is one of the few people with my disabilities that we had always kept in touch with, um, died. And so I knew I wanted to like honor him in a song and it was so ironic for me to hear that they played Stairway to Heaven at his funeral. It's not ironic because he was a guitar player and he loved, that was the first song he learned to play the guitar on, which like every other world. And, uh, there, there was just like an irony in that, and so I, I ended up sampling like the bottom drums, some other song, and it was just like dark and heavy and depressing and sad, and decided like to take these jokes and make a rap about it. Yeah, it's hit harder and like spoken to more people, I think, than any other song of mine, specifically in the disability community. Um, you know, it's the reason I'm as seen in New York Times. <laughs> and like, it's the, um, yeah, it's just funny the way it worked out. I didn't go into it thinking like, I need to make a song about this. Um, right. It was really an homage to my friend and it just worked out. And it is a very like, now looking back on it, you know, it probably hit as hard as it did because it is very personal to me. And those were really funny things that I experience on a daily basis, uh, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, so it, it makes sense why it's relatable. Um, and it was actually put on this like mixtape that I didn't plan to do much with outside of like uh, release it and see what happens. And, and it just worked out so well that like everybody convinced me to put it on our album. 
and I still put it as like a bonus track and it you know it's clearly a single <laughs> um you recently doing a song that where the funds go to the Colorado Freedom Fund is yep. that right mm-hmm. yeah what song is that that's that's a new song too right yeah that's real new um called 187 BPM demo <laughs> uh it's 187 it's, beats per minute that's exactly right um so you know so Greg and Wesley um started recording a track at 187 beats per minute without me and without Josh and of course the rapper had me I think they did it ironically also um but yeah I had to write a fuck the police song and it's not the first fuck the police song I've written um and and then uh was lucky enough to get uh Trini in on it and then uh later on my friend Machete Mouth got on it and uh Pocola got on it so it kind of became this like bigger thing than just like this scrappy demo and um and it was still a scrappy demo and I thought we were gonna have to like re-record it for the album because it was done like on one mic and um the timing was just so wild and like <laughs> I, I almost forgot about it and then I now remembered holy shit we wrote that song and I have it and I, I re-listened to it and yeah, I just had to like release it as as is, um, and try to figure out like the best way to do that, you know, without centering like the band or like sales. But yeah, we've been able to raise eight hundred plus dollars, um, and it just felt right. And I made sure, you know, with the the two black women and the one black man on it that it felt right to do it and made sure that everybody was cool with you know the message of like you know the statement and because uh, it's 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 a it's a ragey song it's definitely like the most violent song I've ever written so like that that was always also really freaky outy for me to put out in this time of chaos is like <laughs> okay hmm. do we pour a little gasoline on the fire because you know i want to <laughs> um, but also like we have to be strategic about how we throw that gasoline you know and that was the whole like there's there's this line a machete map like burn it down burn it down you know when I seven on the motherfucking clock and it's like okay so what are we burning down what are we building and growing in place of that you know because right. I'm a reactionary person too um and and the older I get and the more movements I've been involved in and just watching the history of revolutions like I'm I'm you know I got a fetish for revolution and have since high school and we know time and time again that you can you can replace one system with another and if you're not 
you're not real strategic about the future, it will very easily revert either back to the, the other side of the spectrum and sometimes even worse, you know, like right. the, the Arab Spring was something that really got me into Twitter. And, hmm. you know, some of those countries that overthrew their governments are not in better situations than they were at this, like, exciting time of revolution. Um, and so I'm constantly like, how do we do this and how do we maintain this, you know, like. Um, so, yeah, that was like a really heady monster of like how I have this song. It's super ragey. How do we have some kind of concrete action with it so that it doesn't feel so reactionary, you know? Yeah, I, th I think that's a really important thing about what we're trying to do right now. Like, Josh and I have talked about this, I think, re recently about this pendulum that exists. And, you know, and I'll just liken it to the last 14 years in the United States, so I won't go too meta on this. But, like, there was a lot of anti-Bush stuff, right? There, it, there was a lot of issues with the Bush campaign. And then we, just on a federal level, we elected Obama, who had issues. Like, there were some things that weren't great about President Obama, but it seemed like we were heading in a direction hope, but we didn't cultivate it right. We didn't continue that. And now we're in a, I would argue, a worse place than we were in in 2004 in terms of, um, you know, I just today, I updates in Michigan where police are, uh, the federal government is sending forces to Detroit. You have the federal government and the overreach on this. And so you're right, like if we don't do it right, the momentum that is coming from the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement and other things, um, it will burn it down, but it'll just populate back again to what it is or even worse if we don't have an infrastructure developed, you know? Right, and the system is like really good at selling us all kinds of shit. You right. know, like the Detroit uprising specifically was this huge riot against police brutality and they replaced the mayor they replaced like all these the cop chief i mean they replaced a lot of the city of detroit with black leaders that ended up reverting to capitalism and and selling out their own communities you know so yeah it's it's like a tricky thing and yet like we have enough like history and knowledge, I hope to know better, you know? I mean, this like, in, in our era, in our generation, in our lifetime, it seems wild and like so fascist for unbadged people snatching up people from the streets. And it's like, what, what is the United States of America? It was white people snatching up indigenous folks and not just like putting them in a cage, which is awful and should be completely outlawed for any human. But, you know, I also think that like on a radical, on my radical, like anti United States of America tip is like, we also can't keep selling ourselves this idea that like, things were better, <laughs> you know, that like the Declaration of Independence was written 
quality. It's just, it's, it's bullshit. It's, it's never, it's been founded, or, you know, it's been stolen and, and refabricated to work exactly the way it's doing. It's very effective. It's been doing that since the inception of what we call the United States of America. And now, like, they called it that by killing a hundred million plus natives. (laughs) Like, that's insane. (laughs) Like, we we can't be duped into thinking that, like, shit's gonna get better if we don't burn that down. That's my... Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, and Kaylin is also an educator on top of everything that we've been talking about as well. And, you know, for some of the people that are new to you, Kaylin, how how does this live in your classroom and how you teach your students? And what's kind of your angle with the students that you work with and how do you how do you teach from from this lens? Like, what what is it that you do? Um. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to like uh, work for an organization that like lets me create my own curriculum and like uh, teach from my own lens. And like again, this is the only lens I know and operate in. Thankfully, I teach high schoolers, so like I don't have to completely censor myself. (laughs) Um, So so I teach music production from a social justice lens. So like, you know, what gets me off are like the things I'm excited to share in class are either historical moments where music was used as action or current day moments of using, you know, art and this creative expression um, to express ourselves and and tell our truths um, and document what's really happening because that's that's the role of art. Right? Um, is this is this lens that it hasn't? It's hard, you know. It's not as filtered through um, capitalism, white supremacy, it, you know, all the isms as other um, jobs are. You know, so I'm always trying to bring that to my classroom and. Um, we're currently in like a pretty intensive three week um, share out of just like getting getting more refined in our abolition pedagogy and um, abolition is something that um, I've always like known deeply about myself that that I'm an abolitionist um but now there's more there's more resources um and there's it's you know it's this moment of time a moment of a whirlwind moment where abolition is uh out and proud you know so um 
yeah, I think I think my class, you know, for the past eight years has just been like mostly like music as this tool of change, you know, and that change is mostly for ourselves, you know, like it's mostly to keep us all like somewhat in touch. Um, and it's it's this artistic thing that we do because we don't know how to do anything else. It's the only place we can be our authentic selves. So being able, you know, I want everybody in my class to be their authentic selves. And also it's, it's not fair for me to say like, just be you. We have to set each other up with tools um to navigate through white supremacy and through capitalism and through um all the barriers that so many of our marginalized identities have to deal with on a daily basis you know yeah most definitely um we really appreciate you uh coming on that you have any advice for activists so we have a lot of younger kids and i say kids but like folks in their 20s who i think are taking up the 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 activist stance now and doing some of this work as someone who has dedicated her life to activism like what is your advice to those folks that are now doing this work in the streets on a daily basis demanding change um these folks that are in their 20s early 20s um do you have any suggestions or advice or thoughts I, you know, I think like they're they're gonna have better ideas than anybody else on the planet right now, uh, and they're they're gonna they're the ones that like I want to take lead from, um, and it's just it's just so important to find find your your ways to imagine and to dream up like this new future, but but constantly like painting ourselves into the future. Um, because this isn't this isn't a one time shot. Um, this isn't you know, what what's new to us now has been um the case for a very long time and so like mm. to undo the monstrous systems that have worked so effectively for so long like we have to dream up something different not something within you know it's like um yeah i think i think constant like activism and organizing tends can burn you out and <laughs> can be just so heavy in like a time where everything is so heavy that it's like important now more than ever um, to have these these places where we can rest and imagine and be creative and like make each other laugh because like it's the only way we're gonna get through it you know if it's not if it's not accessible and sexy and fun, exciting, like it's just not gonna go very far, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, I would just say like make it as fun and exciting as possible, um, so that you will be able to do it for a longer period. You know, for it's a lifetime commitment, really. You know. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I it's been an honor to share space with you today and talk about. A little bit about your history, about your music, about your educator, as you being an educator. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank y'all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Whiteness in America podcast. In a moment, we're going to get to our interview with Dr. Josie Carmona. Uh, however, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the Colorado Freedom Fund. We mentioned the Colorado Freedom Fund in our interview with Kaylin Heffernan. Kaylin's band, Wheelchair Sports Camp, wrote a song that, that is raising money and awareness for the Colorado Freedom Fund called 187BPSDEMO. This song can be downloaded at wheelchairsportscamp.co and you can uh, raise, uh, contribute money toward the Colorado Freedom Fund there. A little bit about the Colorado Freedom Fund. The CFF is a revolving fund that posts bonds to buy freedom for people in Colorado that are incarcerated or in jail due only to their inability to afford the cost of bail bond. Um, they are based in Denver, Front Range, and primarily post bonds in Denver, Arapahoe, Jefferson, Adams, Douglas, El Paso, and Boulder counties. The Colorado Freedom Fund was established in 2018 and has been working over the last two years to raise money and awareness around people being held in jail that can't pay, and the only reason they're in jail is because they can't afford their bail or their bond to get out of jail while they await their trial. These folks have not been convicted. Um, they have not been sentenced. They are just folks that are awaiting um, their trial, and the only reason why they are still in jail is because they can't afford the, the bond. So if you want to contribute to this great cause, uh, you can do this by one, donating directly to the Colorado Freedom Fund, but you can also go to wheelchairsportscamp.co, download the song 187 BPS demo, and contribute uh, to the fund. And now to our interview with Dr. Josie Carmona. Associate Vice President, but in her previous job, the Dean of Health Sciences Division at a community college in New Mexico. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm well. I'm well, except I have to work with Josh. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's good to see you again. Hi, Josh. Um, just so people know um, where you're kind of located in in um, the world, where where are you situated exactly? in New Mexico, Texas area, so people know. So I currently live in El Paso, Texas, which is about 40 miles from Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I work. So um, basically I'm living in two states because of the fact that my work um, is driven by New Mexico um, policies, but then I live in El Paso, which are driven by Texas policies as they relate to COVID, um, which are, very different. Um, and you live in a, a place that's now kind of a hotbed for COVID, right? Like you're in a, a very, in El Paso, yeah. yeah? Well, and the governor, I mean, even 
Las Cruces is starting to become a hotspot again, um, yeah. and much in part due to the fact that you have a lot of people who um, move back and forth between Las Cruces and El Paso just because it's such a fluid, it's, you know, I-10, you can be there in 30 minutes. Um, so when the governor shut down um, the state has really been, she's been pretty amazing in New Mexico um, in terms of trying to keep the virus at bay, but Texas didn't do that. And so in El Paso, we reopened restaurants and bars, um, gyms, hair salons. And so there was quite a bit of movement, I believe, from El Paso, from Las Cruces to El Paso, um, because we didn't have the strict regulations that New Mexico does. And so now we're starting to see an uptick in cases once again. So uh, Josh and I wanted Josie to come onto the show uh, to talk because we've been talking about um, schools reopening and the impact of that. And Dr. Dr. Carmona has, uh, she's our Fauci. I'm going to call her that because while she's not an epidemiologist, um, she is going through the process of actually looking at what it takes to open up a school and bring students back whether in just because it's a community college or, or an institution of higher education some of the things that you're thinking about in your plans are either in some level level translatable to pk-12 but in some cases not and and i think this adds to some of the conversation that we the ongoing conversation of who's being impacted most by this push to open up schools this the push to open up in general um, when you have COVID-19 that has largely and disproportionately impacted folks of color. There was a study in New Mexico, it's significantly disproportionately impacting Native and Indigenous Americans. Um, and so, you know, we, we wanted to have someone on that is somewhat of an expert of understanding this and to explain it in a way maybe, because the way you explained it to me the other night when we were on the phone made me really understand the dangers of doing this the wrong way. And so I just, I kind of wanted to pick your brain and have you on for a little bit to talk about that. So thanks for coming on and talk. Thanks, Tom. Well, first, let me just clarify. I do not consider myself an expert. You're I've a Fauci. <laughs> I've been saying <laughs> since we started this that we're building the plane as we're in the air, right? And every day uh, we get new information. And um, even though I oversee a health sciences division, I do not have a health sciences background. And so I have a pure like administrator lens. And um, so I've had to work really hard to like read up on the literature and just really follow the science as much as possible, but it's very limited, right? And every day a new study comes out that tells us something different. So we, um, I was one of the first, I think in our area to really prepare and say we should just shut down and end clinicals. And I got a lot of flack. Um, from my students and probably my faculty and staff who were like, I think you're overreacting. We shut down our clinicals two weeks prior to the school shutting down. And um, that was just- Was this back in March? Yeah, or, back in March. Okay. I think our last day I had shut down, I think we shut down and sent everybody home March 13th. So two weeks before that, I was like, start pulling students from um, clinical rotations just because it was really bothersome to me that we were watching what was happening internationally, but we kept hearing a lot of stuff about, oh, this is just the flu. Um, and I tend to err on the side of caution and I'm very, I'm cautiously optimistic. And so I got a lot of flag for that. And then as we started to really learn more about it and I work really closely with our public health faculty 
at the community college and we um, we serve on various committees. We call it our COVID strike force teams. And um, I started learning a lot from them just in terms of uh, what are safe practices in coming back. So initially we had a lot of pushback from students as well who said, you know, I wanna finish my clinical rotations. I wanna get a job, I wanna be able to test. And so that's that push and pull between um, safely returning and then also this idea that if we don't get students out into the workforce, then the healthcare industry is suffering, right? Because they need more nurses, more respiratory therapists. New Mexico saw a great increase of respiratory therapists who left the state initially to mm -hmm. go to places like New York and in California. Um, and so now we're trying to get people back in. And so us continuing to educate and train students is important in terms of progression, but we wanna do it safely. Um, so we've developed serious protocols in terms of, um, you know, only bringing in four students, a four to one faculty ratio. So four students, one faculty in our clinical labs. We have been um, desperately trying to acquire PPE. So for health sciences, we need a higher level of PPE, uh, which is personal protective equipment. Uh, I learned that term very quickly on when this started. Um, and so we have to have the N95 masks, we have to get um, fit tested in respiratory therapy, uh, respirator training, we have to um, use, you know, disposable gowns and shoe covers and face shields or goggles, um, just so we can conduct our labs because we can't do a lot of our work without breaking that six foot rule. Um, and so we were the first in our in our college to start developing those protocols. And even then, you know, we have a strict check-in procedure, you know, four students at a time in some labs, one student at a time, um, just so that we can continue progressing. We also have a dental clinic, which we have not opened, and it's probably one of the most difficult um, challenges I faced in higher ed is how do we safely reopen a dental clinic so that we can help students continue progressing. So we've had to order specialized equipment and face shields and put up barriers so that we can help graduate 12 students who are now really behind. Uh, and this is all said and done. And I'll take a pause there in case you have some questions. Um, well, I, I had a question and I was recently, actually today in a town hall meeting with our superintendent here in Denver. And one of the questions that I asked her and, and I wanna pose the question to you too is, you know, when we all went remote in the spring, um, we we knew of 300 to 400 confirmed cases in the U.S. and we became alarmed and we all went remote. And now we sit with so many more confirmed cases. Four million today, as of today. Four million. And we're considering putting ourselves back out there when it has been exponentially more dangerous. How are you making decisions based upon that reality right now? So a couple of things, right? Um, so now we know more information, not a whole lot more, but we know more about ways that masks are really effective when they're properly used. Social distancing, we have increase in testing, especially in our area. Um, we recognize ways that we've learned to sterilize the hand washing so we've been able to figure out a few key points from a public health perspective that I think um, if people are responsible, we could, and we work with really small groups of students, we can do this safely, right? 
but again, we had a meeting today and we were like, okay, we're, ba we're not, we're barely in phase one, according to the state um, guidelines. And we may not get to go to phase two in the fall. And so the only programs on our campus, we were planning for everything to go online except for those hands-on CTE programs, the technology. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones that I'm telling you, we've worked really diligently to create plans where you only have four students in a lab or sometimes only one student with appropriate PPE. Now, we have been operating under the, the um, assumption that if we don't get that PPE, we're not doing it. So we've had to delay situations. So like in some cases, we were able to get N95s for our respiratory therapists, the hospitals, well, now that they've seen an uptick, they're no longer able to provide them. We did get a shipment in, and so now our students can continue in clinicals. But the minute that PPE goes away, clinicals shut down. And, and I feel like we can safely do that with small groups of students where there's a reason, right? We have a reason to do this. You know, students need to, especially in the healthcare industry, they need to complete their training so that they can take their exams and go into the workforce. I don't think the same for like a ceramics class or a science mm -hmm. class that proved can be offered online. And we at our college have spent the better part of the last three or four months working with faculty to get that, um, their courses up to speed and on the technology. And I think what happens is we have this perception that online learning is less than face-to-face -face or in-person learning. And I think that colleges need to shift to, um, to messaging in a different way, that you're still getting quality, right? But we're protecting you. Um, we're still gonna help you progress but we're gonna do it in the safest way possible. And only if it, a hands-on skill has to be taught, like in welding, you know, I feel safe with welding. They come in completely covered. They have like head to toe covering. They're spaced more than six feet apart. There's no need for two students to actually interact with one another. If a professor has to come up and help with some type of welding, they are also in complete garb, right? For that protection. Um, but it doesn't make sense for everyone. And I feel strongly that it doesn't make sense for K through 12. Um, because we're having a hard time hurting students who are older, right? They're over 18. We're talking to them about how behavior is really important, not only in the classroom, but what they do outside of the classroom can potentially risk an entire program getting shut down, right? So if they're attending these get togethers or family parties, or they're not socially distancing, they're not wearing masks outside of school, then they're putting all of their cohort at risk. Um, in health sciences, I think that message has gone across very well because these are students who want to be health science or healthcare workers. Um, but also I think in our other industry areas, they're seeing this as our opportunity that we're providing a safe way for them to continue and complete and get employed. Um, we're not doing that for all classes. We're not doing those hybrid flex classes where we bring in like half the class, like logistically, this small group of 200 sections has been quite difficult and challenging. We're modifying schedules. We're increasing the amount of work that faculty actually have to do. So it takes a lot of time, resources, and energy to create a plan for a small group of students. And in K through 12, I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can do it well, and you can't, um, especially small children, like, you know, I can just see them taking off masks and, you know, they just changed the directions again with us today. Like they told us that um, 
what they call a high risk exposure is no longer 15 minutes in with someone without a mask on. Um, it's three minutes now, right? So like, oh. let's say you're in the room. And so that changes things for us, right? Because we were saying, okay, you could have generally a conversation with someone with a mask on, be six feet socially distanced. And if you didn't do that for more than 15 minutes, then you would be fine. We'd consider that low risk. Well, we just got new direction from the state and CDC that that time frame is actually three minutes. Is that three minutes with a mask? That's the question we're asking, right? Three minutes right. with a mask, three minutes without, and we haven't gotten any clarification, which makes this process so hard. Every day I wake up and I have to modify our plans. And I honestly tell my students, faculty and staff, and I just tell them, we're gonna take this day by day um, we will do the best that we can, but the day that like we get to shut down, like we have to shut down because the governor is very responsible in New Mexico, then you all need to be prepared for that. Um, not to mention like all of the stress that it causes, um, you know, our schools are probably not gonna go back. They're probably gonna be online. So now I'm dealing with administratively having students on campus, but also potentially having faculty and staff who can't come to work to deal with any of this stuff because they have little ones at home and being caring for them in their position or someone who is ill. I personally am a high risk category. And so I had to basically say, I cannot be in my health sciences division building in the fall because there's gonna be too much traffic there and the risk for me increases, right? right. But if in my interim position, we may like house like an administrator on campus where nobody comes in, we're just there to, I don't know how to say this, maybe for appearances, um, where nobody's coming in the office, I would feel safer doing that because nobody, there's not gonna be random traffic coming through. It would be me going to an office, doing my work at the office and then leaving, right? Um, but we're still working out those details. Hmm. Wow. So, kind of getting to where our conversation was the other night and I and I hope this is not a leading question although it's going to sound like it um knowing that many of our schools that are in communities that are in that are high risk right now so you're you know we still have in Michigan we still have a lot of um cases happening at a high rate in Detroit um, in Grand Rapids, which are two of our largest urban spaces. Um, and that tends to be where we're starting to, where we still see a lot of, of these cases. And, and knowing that the infrastructure for technology and support for online learning is difficult also because access to computers is difficult for these communities. You have a push for normalcy right like that's happening in these spaces too and not just in urban spaces you see it in rural spaces and suburban spaces but it, if you were to send your kids to school like send kids to school um i can't see our school staying open longer than a week before something happens in right. in in our in our in our urban communities where you have the populations in like josh's school for example where there's five to six hundred kids in a middle school um, which is a lot of human beings in a space. Um, in our rural communities, I could maybe see them staying open until late September before they have a major outbreak at the school, possibly. But it could, I mean, all it takes is one person. 
So it could be a lot sooner than that. So what I'm hearing you say is regardless of the precautions that we have, you're doing things and your students have medical grade PPE and 95 masks and your faculty have them because they're in labs in which they're, they're using that equipment anyways. In the case of our school system, our students don't have access to that. They have cloth masks at best, and our teachers and staff also have cloth masks. How would you build a response for that as an administrator? And I guess that's why I mean, like when I said you're my Fauci, like I don't mean it in the sense of the medical sense, but in the sense of the, the responsible administrator lens that's trying to figure out what to do like, is it even possible or conceivable to have schools happen no, in the fall? In a, in a leadership position where I was advising a superintendent, I would say no. Um, but I think the, the, the problem is incredibly complex in some ways, but then really simple in others, right? So the issue here isn't about, like, students aren't going to fall behind if we take a semester off, right? If we, but... What, what does that require? It requires that our government step up and support, you know, our citizens financially so that there isn't that stress or demand to go back to school or work because of the economy, right? So that, so, okay, we have that situation. Um, but if you are going to go back to school, you need a huge investment financially, right? Because if students don't have access to internet, if they don't have access to more than one iPad or laptop in their home, um, how can they possibly create a learning environment or have a learning environment where it's equitable? And those are the challenges we're having right now where we're talking about in training with faculty, like you need to take into consideration X, Y, and Z, like not everybody has a space where they can learn. You can't have synchronous meetings, like you can't demand them or require them. So we pushed, we've crammed best practices for online learning into three months and we're expecting miracles. And it's because everyone has these expectations of value, right? Educational value. And so they're equating like, why would I send my student to go do online and pay for it if um, it's not as valuable as in person? And I would argue with people that actually it can be just as valuable, right? If you had a crappy teacher in person, they're gonna be crappy online, right? It, just because they went online doesn't make you a crappy teacher. Um, but we also have to scale back our expectations. We're in a pandemic. I, yeah. I, I oftentimes just sit there in meetings and I'm like, you guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And we're sitting here so hard trying to like normalize what we're currently doing and apply these unrealistic expectations to what will be happening. Um, I, would, I would say the same would be for face-to-face. -face. Like the expectations for learning to happen in a face-to-face -face environment I, I wouldn't expect, if I was teaching in a face-to-face -face environment, I would be literally sweating the entire time, being very aware and hypercritical of anyone that sneezed or breathed heavily or coughed or did anything that was like outside of sitting there still in their seat. Um, I don't think I could concentrate as, a, as an educator. I don't think I could concentrate as a student. So like to think that people are going to learn in that space just doesn't make any sense either. Right. You know? Right. I think if we were to shift all of this energy that we're putting into coming back and resources, because look at what these schools are doing. Some of these four-year institutions are investing in tents, right? They're investing in plexiglass and it's like, okay, why don't you invest and get everybody a laptop? 
Why don't you invest right. and make everybody, you know, get them internet access, right? Why are we, we're still gonna have the issue of CTE programs. And, and, and for me, I feel like it's a challenge. We're gonna try to do it, but inevitably if we have a case and we have to shut down, we're gonna shut down, right? If the governor says we can no longer, if hospitals tell us, Josie, you're, you can't send your students to us, you don't have a choice. Um, we just need to be prepared for that. But if the investment of dollars went to bettering our infrastructure for wireless, for getting everybody the type of resources that they need, for recognizing that this is what we're going to have to do because it's part of the, um, you know, it's part of COVID. This is our reality right now. Um, I think we might have a different outlook for continuing education. But unfortunately, this current administration is looking at this from the perspective of profits over people, right? And the economy. And if, you know, when you start to get to a point where you're like, oh, we're only going to lose, I don't know what the statistics are, but point whatever percent of children. 14,500 children. Yeah. yeah. Zero, like, that doesn't bother you. We're beyond, right. like, rational carry and that's what education is about yeah yeah i think i think you bring up a good point too is that you know i think early in some of our learning that we were taught you know maslow's hierarchy of needs and when we think about that pyramid especially in these times it's like suddenly we throw out all of that out the window when we think about psychological needs safety needs and as we move up to actual like self-actualization and esteem. And I feel like because of a capitalistic society, we are now not functioning from a point of any type of rational thinking, only power and only money. And so us, us three, we all work in education, you know, how quickly education is part of the machine now. Not only have we become part of the machine, but now we're fueling the machine. So right. I, I was going to ask you too, Josie, like ethically and where you sit, like where do you come to like a crossroad with like your personal beliefs and what is going on in your institution? And, and is there a clash? So I'm pretty lucky. So we're part of a larger system. And I believe that that larger system is probably a bit more relaxed. Um, and wanting to come back, whereas I believe my leadership is really focused on doing this safely if we do. Um, I know that I have a sphere of influence and um, for the, the divisions and people who report to me, I remind them and I say, you know, we're gonna take care of you and your health first, right? Um, but I'm one person. I am grateful that I have fellow leaders who agree and we clash in meetings where I'm like, no, um, we're not gonna just open the campus willy-nilly. We're gonna force a check-in process. We're gonna hire a contact tracer. And interestingly enough, that was part of our recommendation we submitted last week. And then the governor's put out the higher ed, um, um, they finally released like a higher ed guiding document. And one of the requirements was that we had to have a procedure for screening students and anyone who came on campus. And we had to have and hire a contact tracer on our campus to manage any potential um, COVID breakouts. And so I've also been pushing a lot for why are we not making the decision now from a 
psychological yeah. perspective for our people. So we made the decision back in May that we were going to be fully online in June and in, in fall. Right. So we we didn't tell our faculty and staff like, oh, we're going to wait. We may do it. We told them right away. This is the only group of people that can come back. Everyone else is going online. And we work towards that goal in training and preparing and helping faculty prepare their classes. And it helped alleviate so much of the stress, I believe, because faculty were like, okay, I know I'm not coming back in the fall. I know that I can prepare my class to deliver online. Um, for those of us who are in CTE programs, we've spent all of the summer just preparing plans and informing students and just, you know, taking a day by day. And our plan B is it ends, right? We are on hold. Right. So yeah. ethically, I think that my job is to say things like, um, you know, to challenge, you know, they said people who were in high risk categories needed to justify, like get an accommodation, right? And I pushed back hard on that, like the larger system said that, and I was like, no. And I, I know that it was, at first I was like, am I being selfish because I have, like, I'm in the high risk category? But then I thought about it and I'm like, I'm willing to talk about my medical issues. That's not the issue. We, but we shouldn't have to, like, it's a pandemic. I shouldn't have to explain to you that I don't want to die because of this. And I, I'm really sad about the public school situation, like the K through 12, because I have yet to see a school district that engages their teachers in the conversation. They just basically, it's a group of administrators who have decided to set up these plans and the teachers have not been a part of those conversations. Mm. They're the ones going to put themselves at risk. And we saw in New York that they lost, what was it, 11,000? Was it 11,000 teachers lost? Something like oh, that, yeah. 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 That may be high. But they lost a lot of teachers and um, administrators in New York from the education system. Um, and that, like, if you can't see the, the sadness of that, I don't know how else to reach you. You know, like to remind people that any loss of human life is unacceptable. It's really sad. I think it was a yeah. hundred. Was it a hundred teachers? Something like that. Yeah, it was a hundred. Well, teachers. in Missouri, uh, eighty percent of teachers in a in one of their larger counties have quit. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, in Missouri, was one of the first states to really give it a shot this summer, and they were one of the first states to actually have parents and teachers sign death waivers. Wow. Yeah, that 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 got brought up and I was like, no, I, I fought that battle too. I was like, oh, hell no. Why would we, you know, in health sciences, we don't have students sign those waivers and they can get potentially when they go out and do their clinicals, we've never required it before. Why would we start now? Right. right. But it's that initial like, so people are asked to accomplish something. And the, the first thing that happens is what what is my liability in this instead of saying, if I'm worrying about liability, should we be doing this? Yeah, right? and that's where we're at right now. So like, I know I have a, a counterpart that does clinical and field for another area and they're like, yeah, we worked with the legal to do this liability waiver. And I turned to one of our faculty and I was like, yeah, we probably should do that. But at the same time, like if we're having to do that, we just shouldn't be sending people out. Like 
that what is our what is the moral and ethical obligation to protect our students and protect the students that our students are impacting and so we haven't yet went down that route because i think we're more on the this the space of we can find a different way to do this we can partner with schools and do online and virtual preparation and virtual support and work with our districts that are doing that and um if if i have a student teacher for their last internship that is really wanting to be in a school and I have a district that really wants them to be there. Right now I'm like, well, I guess I, you know, the state is saying it's okay. The district is saying is okay. The university hasn't come out with any guidance that says we can't. And the student really wants to do it. It's the same as them going out on their own, right? And being a substitute teacher. So we're, we have to let them do that at that point, but we're basically having meetings um, moving forward to saying that, you know, we're just, I don't think we're going to do any clinical or field outside of the final capstone. And the final capstone will mostly be virtual, I think. So I have a feeling that the governor is going to make a decision for us here in Michigan in the next week and just say we're virtual at least until October. Right. And I think at the so. end of the day, we are just, we're so obsessed with progression and life being normal. Yeah. Um, that we aren't willing to really take a pause right so just take a pause and let the scientists do their job and trying to figure out you know what the treatments are give healthcare workers a break because the hospitals are getting inundated um and people really have to learn to be okay with delaying um their own personal goals and objectives Add to that a government who recognizes that and takes care of its people, and we wouldn't be having these conversations. And yet, that'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, we're sending people to federal officers to cities. Um, yeah. Because there's so much violence and uprising in our right. our cities. Found out that he was going to send them to Albuquerque. Right? Yeah, I, like, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, really? Albuquerque? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's sad that, um, you know, when I heard we passed surpassed 4 million cases, it just blew my mind. Um, and my boss did say, like, we shut down when we didn't have any cases. Like, yeah. we have, and now we have all these cases in our county, and we're sitting here doing plans. And in my mind, I had just decided a long time ago to operate under the assumption that we weren't going to open until uh, maybe next year, next summer, because um, I've already warned my faculty and staff and said, just be prepared. We're going to continue in this mode for fall and spring 2021. Yep. Um, and I'm OK with that. Um, and so I don't get nearly as anxious, but I don't have school children. I do have siblings who teach in K through 12. I do worry for them um, because they're like this, they're up and down. You know, one minute they're being told you're gonna start August 3rd. Then it was like, no, August 17th. Then it's like, only get you only get three weeks for online and the state of Texas says you have to come back, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think emotionally abusive, you know? I'm glad the Missouri teachers like quit. I keep saying if people were to just protest, right? And do mass, walkouts, virtual walkouts, um, maybe it would send a message. 
Maybe. This isn't a ridiculous demand to make on our teachers and our children. No. Thanks for coming on, Josie. I really appreciate your um, insights on this. Yes. And your wisdom and, and kind of the ethic of care that you take into this kind of conversation. It's really, um, I'd, I'd work for you. Aw. Yeah. So, I, thanks. Said I get jobs all the time, so I'd love to come and work for you. I know, I was going to say, we would be one stop along the way. I still think we need to open our own university. Um, we should. Should. Well, that was a great interview with uh, both Kayla and Josie. I was really excited to talk with both of them today. Uh, any final thoughts before we head out today, Josh? You know, I think the tying together both what Kayla and Josie had to say today was, you know, we Kayla talked about a lot about intersectionality and her role as an activist, as a musician, as an educator, and kind of where she is in the world as she, you know, navigates those systems. Josie too talks in similar fashion um, in the way that she, you know, leads and um, navigates the systems of making sure that her, um, you know, her department is safe. And I think that, you know, when we think about their two um, perspectives, it's hard not to think about equity, mm. um, you know, who who's in the front lines of protests? Who are the individuals that we're putting at risk when we put them in schools? Um, who has the options to stay home and be remote? And who are those that can stay at home and not protest? And when I think about all these areas of privilege and those that are on the front lines, it's it's hard not to think about race. It's hard not to think about those that need to be in the front lines and those that have no choice but to be in the front lines. And so, you know, and it's been said many times that we have two pandemics or we're facing two types of um, pandemical issues and that'd be COVID and racism. And, you know, I, 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 I've heard that many times and I think Josie and Kaylin address both of those from intersectional work. So I really appreciate what they brought today. Yeah, it was a great episode. It was uh, we're, we're really digging in with some very unique topics and some really fun stuff. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for that really good analysis, Josh. I appreciate it. And, and before we close out, again, if you are interested in checking out Wheelchair Sports Camp, you can find them at wheelchairsportscamp.co. And uh, if you buy the single 187 BPS, um, you I think the uh, the proceeds go to um, was it the Colorado Freedom Fund? So, yes. uh, which is a really great opportunity to support something, both a, a really great uh, group, but also a really great project. So, uh, check that out. As always, you can follow us on uh, Twitter at Disrupt Whiteness. Um, you can find us at whitenessinamerica.com. And um, just in case you're keeping track on the day that we're recording this, it is 12.02 a.m. Uh, it is 133 days now since Breonna Taylor was murdered 
and her uh, folks that murdered her are still at large. So with that being said, we will um, see you next time. See ya.